He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. And we are live. All right. Well, Phil, we got uh, Dr. Anthony Chaffee with us today. I didn't introduce the show because I figure anybody who's listened to us for any length of time has heard me do that intro. How many times? This is like show number 65 or something. I don't know. I've done it a lot. Um, so we've got Dr. Anthony Chaffee here with us today. I've done a little research on this dude. Um, and I have questions, but I would like to ask you, why is he here? <laughs> yes, definitely. I've been excited to uh, talk with Anthony for uh, quite a bit now. Um, you know, we've had a number of other physicians on. We've had uh, family doctors. We've had cardiologists. We've had orthopedic surgeon. But I figured it was time for us to finally bring out the big guns and get the brain surgeon on. <laughs> so... Um, but Anthony's got a uh, fascinating background and, uh, you know, has been uh, involved personally, I know, and I'll let him tell her story with metabolic health for quite a while uh, and now professionally as well. And uh, he's, uh, he's halfway around the world, three quarters around the world uh, in Australia uh, doing his training uh, in neurosurgery now. Uh, so, Anthony, why don't you? fill in a little bit more of your background for our audience and, and tell us how you got interested in metabolic health and what's brought you to where you are today. Well, thank you both very much for having me on. Um, I, I really do appreciate the opportunity. Um, as you say, I, I'm uh, American, uh, an American medical doctor, uh, but I'm currently in Australia and uh, previously lived in Europe as well, played rugby at a high level in the US and in Europe and Canada um, well, since I was 18, really. And I've always been very interested in, in diet, nutrition, how that have, had affected our health, you know, specifically for, uh, an athletic performance, um, uh, you know, sort of thing early on, but also because I was, I was always interested in medicine and becoming a doctor. It just, it, you know, it made a lot of sense, you know, that I would, that I would look into that. I was always very interested in biology and, so I, I just wanted to know what was, what was optimal for me as an athlete. And when I was taking cancer biology at the university of Washington in Seattle, 22 years ago, I had a professor that, uh, you know, just, just walked us through just the, the fact that, you know, uh, you know, plants use defense chemicals in order to protect themselves from animals and insects. Uh, from being eaten. And that's how they survive in the wild because, you know, nature's killer be killed for plants as well as animals. And we were doing this on a cancer, you know, from a cancer perspective. So we were looking at carcinogens and we learned that, you know, Brussels sprouts had 136, you know, identified carcinogens at the time. Uh, mushrooms had over a hundred spinach, kale, lettuce, celery, cabbage, cucumber, broccoli, all every, every vegetable you've ever come across had 60 or 80 or over a hundred known human carcinogens. And they're quite, quite abundant. You know, we know from the work of Dr. Bruce Ames at UC Berkeley in 1989, that there are far more about 10,000 times more toxic elements in 
the plants themselves than the pesticides we sprayed on them. And that the naturally occurring poisons were far more likely to cause cancer than the pesticides we sprayed on them, which is why we still have pesticides because they were trying to ban them in the 1980s. And he just said, Oh, wait, hold on a second. You know, we've been using these things for eight years. Like why, you know, why now, why are they causing a problem now? And so he did the research and he, and he showed uh, that if you, well, if you're going to eat the spinach anyway, you know, the pesticides are actually a drop in the bucket. We were, we were quite taken aback by that. And we found that, and and I remember looking around, we're just like, all of us were just looking around wildly, like looking for like a TA, like, you know, snickering in the corner, like, oh, he does this all the time. You know, it, it must be a joke. And there wasn't anything like that. And it slowly dawned on us that that he was actually serious. And I remember thinking to my in my head, you know, like, well, you know, but vegetables are still good for you though, right? And he just must have read our minds because he looked at us and said, I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. So I said, right, screw plants. And I just stopped eating them. And I went to the grocery store and I just, I just went, went through the, the, the aisles. And it was just like, everything is a plant. Everything has plants. Everything's come from a plant or at least has plants mixed in with them. And so I was just walking around like, well, what, what do I eat? And I just was like, eggs. Okay. Eggs. You know, that doesn't come from a plant. Walked by some meat. I was like, great meat. That doesn't come from a plant. And so I just ate eggs, meat, and, uh, and, and sometimes milk, uh, for five years after that, because specifically to not eat plants. And so I inadvertently started eating what I think is, is, you know, our natural human diet, and I had massive, massive, massive benefits from this, uh, from a health and athletic perspective. I was, you know, my athletic performance just, just went through the roof. I, I, you know, stopped being able to tire myself out. I was able to have my exercise tolerance, uh, grew tremendously. The harder I pushed myself, my body just, just soared. And I got to the point where I, I just couldn't get tired. I couldn't run out of energy. I didn't get sore from working out, which was very strange to me, but I found that if I had any sort of plant material, especially, you know, grains or carbs, I, I was, you know, sore as you would expect to be after working out. But if I didn't have any of those, I just, I was not sore. So I came to the conclusion, this was, you know, these toxins in plants that were actually causing this stiffness, soreness and swelling. So I did that for five years and then just sort of slipped off of that. When I was living in England, it didn't have the same access to meat. Some of the meat was breaded. And I just thought like, oh, is it that big of a deal? And that was just sort of you know, slip down, you know, the path, uh, you know, back to eating a more traditional sort of diet. And I never ate like much processed foods or anything like that. It was always whole foods, but I started incorporating plants again. And then about five years ago, uh, I came across some, you know, information that was just like, no humans actually are carnivores. This is actually the kind of animal that we are. And I was, I was a doctor at that time, taking some time off to help my, my folks and do uh, humanitarian work in Bangladesh. And it just, everything just, just clicked. It's like, okay, that's, that's why I felt so amazing in my early twenties. Um, you know, because I, I stopped, I stopped eating plants. I was just living as humans had traditionally lived and eating what we were supposed to eat and looking at medicine from that perspective, things just started slotting into place. You know, like you know, think that, you know, humans are animals kind of animal we are as a carnivore, but we're not living as such. And we're, we're eating things outside of our species. And as any zookeeper will tell you, 
if you eat something, if you feed an animal something that it doesn't eat in the wild, something it didn't evolve on, it gets very sick. But what do they get sick with? They get obesity, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, arthritis, autoimmune diseases. And this is why you have science at the zoo is they don't feed the animals. It makes them very sick. And, you know, but people forgot to put those signs up in front of our refrigerators. And so I started approaching medicine from that perspective. And I started diving into the literature and trying to find out as much as I could about what we knew and uh, what we could prove and, um, and, and then see what we could, we could uh, apply in practice in real life. And I've just been doing that for the last several years now. Okay. So you're not on a show where we're, we're going to push back against that because we're all pretty much on board with the basic idea. However, um, you're, you're in a, a, an industry and I don't hesitate to call medicine an industry uh, where that particular message, as best as I can tell from the guests we've interviewed over the last year, uh, is not greeted with open arms. So you're training to be a neurosurgeon. Is that correct? That's correct. So how's this uh, I'm a carnivore message play there in the neurosurgery locker room yeah well it's actually been been quite well received you know i um you know i when i when i started digging into the research you know i you know i I spent i I had the virtue of uh a little free time because i was i was helping out uh with some family issues and so i I spent months just just reading papers and, and uh studying this subject and you know, looking at, at vegan websites and the plant-based people and saying, okay, what am I missing? You know, my, this, this is what it looks like to me, but you know, maybe I, I don't want to be a victim of confirmation bias. I like, you know, what's the other side of the story and uh, you know, what, what's uh, what's the other argument. And I, I just found that there were quite a lot of flaws in, in their arguments and that this actually reinforced what I was thinking. And you're right. A lot of people push back just in, just in everyday life. And some people would just get angry at me and say, it's like, you're a doctor. Like, that's ridiculous. You can't say that. And I was like, well, all right. And, um, let's talk about it. And I was able to, you know, debate people and, and, um, explain it to people sometimes a couple of times a day, because people would just get really shocked. So by the time that I was, you know, back you know, in my department now or, or other departments, um, I, I was pretty well uh, versed in the arguments on, um, on why we're carnivores and why this matters and the difference that it makes. So people were just sort of interested. They, when they found out, I never sort of telegraphed it, but it's quite you know, obvious that when, you, when you, you're not drinking coffee with everyone, which is like really weird in, in medicine, you know, everyone just lives on coffee and, uh, you know, and then you go out to, to lunch, you guys grab breakfast, something like that. And I'm just eating bacon and eggs and, and never having coffee, like it comes up. And so people would ask questions and I had answers and a few of the people, you know, got very interested and would just, you know, sit down if we had some time and we would just talk more about it. I'd send them resources, I'd send them uh, you know, links to studies and became very interested. So actually you know, half the department sort of tried it out. And there was a number of people that became 
uh, we just went full carnivore as well. One guy was a vegan. He was uh, he was from India. His family were were religiously vegan, and uh, and he had been vegan for, just for health reasons. He was trying to find you know the best way to go. And Australia is a very very big uh, vegan movement, and it's and it's growing in popularity. And so I came in, you know, right at right at that time when it was just at its at its peak. So I, it was just people look at me like I had three heads, but you know I was able to you know, convince even vegetarians and vegans, uh, of this. I have a, a pretty good record that people who, who actually engage with me and ask, ask me questions, even, even aggressively, uh, if they'll hang out and listen to the answers, so even if they're trying to like, Oh, listen to this. And then I'll say something I've, I've been able to convince all of them. I have, I have a hundred percent kill rate on converting oh. vegans at the moment. What's and, the um, best question they ask. They're, they're all pretty much the same. It's always, well, what about cholesterol? You know, but what about, doesn't red meat cause, you know, bowel cancer. And I mean, these are, these are very, very, uh, they're not you even know, well-established. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, yeah, because, well, but that's the thing, you know, it's, 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 uh, it, I think it's very well-established that, that those are, um, have been, uh, com, you know, completely overturned, but not everyone knows that. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's the major thing. I mean, that's, that's been going on for 40 years. That's why people started avoiding red meat in the first place was because cholesterol and saturated fat. And they're still teaching that in, in, uh, you know, dietetics and nutrition schools. And, um, you know, it, it's quite, it's quite surprising. I mean, I, I literally heard, uh, you know, a, a very senior colorectal surgeon, cautioning his patients don't eat red meat it causes bowel, bowel cancer i'm like no you should know better than that and um it's just it's just that's you know you, you repeat things so many times people just believe that they're true and so yeah they're not great questions and you know well what about the vitamins you're, you're missing out on vitamins oh but plants are so good for you they have they have all these nutrients which is true they have nutrients they're living things they have things that are good for other living things but they also come with at a price. They come with a lot of uh, defense chemicals. You know, all, all plants do to varying degrees. And it's not that they, some are more or less poisonous because they make more or less poisons. It's just they're more or less poisonous to us because we have certain defenses to certain poisons and less defenses to others. You know, spinach isn't as bad for us as hemlock, you know, but there are things that eat hemlock that can't eat spinach you know, because they have those defenses that we don't. Um, yeah, I, very. I, I do have a question about, uh, it is my understanding that our teeth indicate that we're omnivores. Mm -hmm. Can you address that from the carnivore standpoint? Well, yeah, certainly. Um, I, I would first, you know, mention, you know, just say that you know, what is our what is our working definition of, of an omnivore is it, is it something that is able to eat plants you know and, and to what degree because you know even even uh, you know cats and you know big cats small cats they're considered obligate carnivores but there are some plants that they can eat and and this arrives in their in their kibble that they're fed uh, in packaged food uh, most plants will will kill a feline. Uh, you know, we can eat more plants certainly, but they can eat some plants. Does that make them an omnivore? Probably not. Same with dogs. They, uh, they're considered scavenger carnivores because they eat some more plants, uh, but they can eat much, you know, less plants than, than humans can. Um, 
So we come from an herbivorous past. Um, about sort of six, eight million years ago, they came from herbivores and then our, our ancestors started eating meat and we sort of split off and that's the train we went down. So we, we, we come from yeah, a more recent herbivorous past than, than dogs and cats. And so, uh, but we're also primates. So we have primate teeth and, but we have adaptations that I think are due to that turn to eating meat at first omnivory, but then carnivory. Uh, our teeth became smaller that, you know, they're not big, like a gorilla, you know, they're, we're eating softer and softer food and we're not chewing on sticks like a gorilla does. Gorillas have big fangs. You know, we don't have big fangs. We don't, we don't need them. Those, those can be defensive as well as offensive and, and they're, they're need driven. You know, we didn't kill things with our mouths. We didn't attack things with our face and our claws um, because we, figured out ways of, of getting meat. We were using pound stones to crack open the skulls of, of animals that had already been killed by, you know, bigger animals, bigger predators and get at the brains. And our, our ancestors, we have, we have fossil records going back millions of years for that. And then we started using, you know, stone tools with a, with a sharp razor edge. And then we could, we could actually, you know, cut the meat off of things. So, you know, we didn't have claws, we didn't have teeth, but that's because we didn't kill things with our mouths and our hands. So you know, that's how we developed tools. That's why we had, we had to develop tools. We had to develop our brains. We had to figure out these sorts of things. And so our brains became bigger and we, and we got more clever with tools and tactics. So we have just evolved uh, slightly differently. Our teeth specifically became smaller. Our jaws and our, our muscles of mastication became smaller because again, we're just chewing on softer, softer food. The head of a gorilla, if you, if you, you know, take it away and look at the skull, it's just this big ridge of bone and uh, not, not as much brain as you would think for the size of their head, because most of that is, is the muscles of mastication because they're just chewing, chewing, chewing. Um, people think that we have, you know, flat teeth. They'll, they'll argue, it's like, oh, it looks flat in the front, just like a horse or a cow or something like that. But that's not, not what flat teeth are. Flat teeth are, you know, planar, like a, like a, like a millstone, and they can slide across each other and grind down fibrous plants. And, and break them down and, and digest them easier. But we, we don't, we have bicuspid teeth. If you clench your jaws and try to move your jaw, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, and that's, that's because we're just biting, clamping down like that. We're not going side to side. We can't, we can move our jaw side to side. That's usually something you see in an herbivore, but we did come from an herbivorous past and you don't lose a trait unless you know, evolutionarily, unless there's a, a, a specific survival advantage associated with losing that trait. Otherwise you just, you just keep it on, you know, like color vision. Actually, there is an advantage. There's some advantage to, uh, for hunting for uh, losing color vision, um, black and you know, seeing black and white, you can actually see animals and foliage, um, better. And you can see it at low light times, like sort of dawn and dusk a little better. And so there is an advantage. And I've, I've spoken to people that are sort of like, you know, red, green, colorblind, and they're like, and they go hunting, like, yeah, it's so much easier. I can see things way easier than other people. Okay. So there is an advantage there, but there's also going to be advantages to seeing color as well. So, you know, there's a bit of a trade-off. I, I think that's why we didn't all go, but, you know, you know, we have, we have primate teeth primarily, and we have carnivorous adaptations to that. Okay. Yeah, I think I'll take really, that. I'll accept that. <laughs> yeah, and that and that really brings up the question of you know there's a difference between what we can eat and what is optimal for us. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, you know what's what's you know always been interesting to me is that um, 
you know, you look at whether it's the physicians uh, in this space, um, and they tend to come at this in two different uh, directions. You know, some of us have been focused on, um, you know, fixing health problems, preventing health problems, obesity. Um, others, you know, like yourself, had a focus on, you know, perform high-level performance. Uh, but we end up at the same place. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's pretty clear, you know, what is optimal for us to eat as humans is a mostly carnivorous diet um, with maybe a little bit of this other stuff uh, sprinkled in. Um, but really, those were survival foods. You know, and we looked at evolutionary standpoint. The only reason we really ate plants was because we couldn't get any meat. We couldn't get any kind of products. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and then, and that's sort of going back to the, you know, the omnivores versus carnivores question, you know, like what, how are we defining that? Um, you know, I, I think of it slightly differently. I think of, you know, a, a more practical definition of an omnivore is one of two things. Either you, there are things in plants that you have to have that you cannot get from meat. So you have to eat plants and there are things in meat that you have to get that you cannot get from those plants. So you have to eat meat as well. So you have to eat both or you can get semi-equal nutrition from certain plants as you can from meat. And so it doesn't matter. You can eat these sort of things interchangeably, but we don't, we don't fall into either of those categories. You know, we, there are things in meat that we have to have that we cannot get from plants, but there are there's nothing in plants that we have to have that we cannot get from meat. And we certainly can't eat them indiscriminately. We won't get the same nutrition from plants. They're not bioavailability. There aren't the same nutrients available. And also they cause harm. And so meat is, I think, like uh, like you said, is our is our optimal nutrition. And so I think because we're obligated to eat meat, that we are more correctly obligate carnivores. I don't think that, you know, we, um, I, I just, I just, I think that that sort of those definition of terms needs to be updated. I think. I like that. That makes a lot of sense to the layperson here in the group, obligate carnivores, because there's nothing. I, I, I want to be able to say this the, the way you said it. There's things we have to have that we can only get from meat. Mm-hmm. We can't dress some of the things. There's nothing we get from meat. No, no. There's nothing we get from plants that we can't get from meat that we need. Yeah. And there's things that we have to get that we can only get from meat. Correct. Plants. You still said it way better than I did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, and the other Um, thing that I would add add to that is that, you know, um, the meat, that we are eating, you know, that animal, oftentimes they are herbivores and they have eaten the plants and they are better able to process the plant than we are, you know, especially when you look in the room of family, you know, they have four stomachs designed to break down plant products and to maximally extract nutrients from it. You know, we have nowhere near the same level of nutrient extraction from the plants that living animals do. Uh, and then so when we eat the meat of the living animal, we are getting those nutrients that they then get from the plants. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, to let our listeners know, Phil is coming to us from the airport. He's going to get on an airplane here in just a little bit. 
So he's got a little, we're, we're having to deal with airport level connections here. <laughs> and the miracle is that it sounds as good as it does. So, right. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit, what, what got you interested in neurosurgery? Yeah. What's uh, the training been like for that so far? Yeah. Well, I, I, I've been interested in, in sort of every, every aspect of medicine. I was, um, you know, everything I, I came across, I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's fantastic. And it, it, was, it was difficult for me to choose overall what I wanted to do, but I knew I, 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 I really liked surgery. That was definitely something that I, that I preferred. I just thought, you know, the thought of being able to, you know, fix someone physically with my hands, I go inside their body and fix them physically with my hands. I just thought was, was just the most incredible thing in the world. And so that was, that was something that really appealed to me. Uh, neurosurgery, in particular, just because I, I came across it early on in in my uh, medical school training, and was just quite blown away by it, I went into a surgery where a lady had got kicked in the face by a horse, and they had to, you know, open her up from ear to ear and and pull down her scalp and try to recreate and reconstruct the you know frontal sinuses and and these all these big fractures, and I was just I was really awestruck by that, just thinking, I you know, saw her skull. I was like, wow, her brain is just right under there. Like what that's what makes her who she is, the kind of person she is. That's, that's all encapsulated in that, that one organ. And I was quite, quite taken aback by that thought. Um, and so the next day I was like, okay, I want to go see, you know, an, more neurosurgery cases. And I went in and just, and just started, you know, just scrubbing into any, any neurosurgery cases that they'd let me into. And you know, saw the, you know, the skull come off and saw the brain and saw it pulsating sort of out of, out of the skull. And, and I remember thinking, it was like that, that is everything that that person is, that's who they are as a person, their entire humanity, memories, feelings, you know, there's a, you know, the memory they have of their dog on their seventh birthday exists somewhere in there and you, and you can touch it with your finger. And I just thought that that was just such an amazing thing. And I just wanted to learn a lot more about it. You know, I might've been, uh, you know, just as, as taken aback if I saw, you know, cardiothoracic surgery, you know, open heart surgery at the time, you know, I didn't even see it actually my first open heart case until I was, you know, a, a you know, doctor a few years in, I saw I'm like, that's amazing. You know, just actually seeing like, you know, the heart moving, the lungs moving at this real time. I was like, that doesn't even look real. It looks like a machine or something like that. It just looks, it looks like it's just an, uh, something that can't be, can't be real. And so, uh, but I, I was exposed to that early on and I was very impressed by it. And I was just like, okay, I just want to see as many of these as I can. And so, uh, I, I wasn't even, you know, assigned to neurosurgery. I just, I just like skipped my rotation and just went, to all these neurosurgery cases, I just tried to go see as many of them as I could. And so they, that, you know, that interest just, you know, was, was planted early on and it's just always stuck with me. And I, I think that it's, um, you know, I just, I just think it's, it's, it's an incredible thing. I, I like being able to, uh, you know, work in, in a very, well, high stress, but in, in, a, in an environment where, you know, you, you can help people in a, in a very acute setting, you know, obviously there's obviously so many injuries that, um, people can, can sustain and in neurosurgery, you know, you have, you have sort of minutes or hours to do something or else, or else that's it, which is you know same for, for anything. But, you know, I, I like that. I like that 
sort of life and death sort of medicine. I like being able to you know, get a call, see a patient, make a decision right then and do something for them right there and, uh, and, and be able to, to save their life. And, um, and so that's, that's fit well with me and my personality and how I, I like to approach medicine. And then, you know, the, the chronic stuff as well, chronic pain, uh, back pain. A lot of people you know, don't like that. Um, I don't like it either in a sense, but I, but since coming around to carnivore thing and seeing people's health and, uh, and chronic pain be, you know, just drastically improved by removing certain things from their diet. I find that I can, I can help more people than, uh, than otherwise thought possible just, just by recommending some dietary changes. And, um, and, and, and just the, the surgery as well. I just, I just find it very, very interesting. So it's, it's been a good fit for me, um, from that, that early interest. Have you seen enough crossover between, uh, I'm, I need to frame this question carefully. So you're working on people's brains in your work, and you've also got this other thing that you do, which is carnivore the carnivore lifestyle have you seen crossover in those two things and can you talk about that and and specifically i'm thinking of compare and contrast i had a patient who was standard american diet and then another patient who was a carnivore and blah 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 i'm just wondering where you've seen the effects of carnivore in the patients that you work on yeah, I've I've definitely seen uh, benefits to everyone who's able to try this and and put it in, into practice. Specifically with neurosurgery, we have a lot of chronic pain patients. We have people with you know, in, entrapped nerves or uh, you know canals, you know spinal canal stenosis, where it's it's impacting the functionality of their nerves and they have you know, shooting pain down their bodies and. Sometimes you do surgery, you decompress those nerves and they don't make any substantive recovery because the nerves have been just damaged and upset and inflamed for so long that they, they don't end up calming down. And that's, that's very difficult. And they, become, they go down the chronic pain pathway of medications and counseling and, and uh, just trying to figure out ways of dealing with this pain. And you know, through my, my work online and then being able to, to suggest this to people that are in that situation. I found that people in those, in those situations with this bad, you know, radiculopathy and, you know, it's like sciatica sort of pain that they can alleviate much hold, of those symptoms. What did you say? Radiculopathy? Yeah. That's what it's called. When you, when you compress one of the spinal nerves, that's, that's coming a out. real thing. Radiculopathy. Like, yeah. <laughs> ridiculous. And Apathy. Yeah. Am I hearing that right? Yes, but radiculopathy. Oh, radiculopathy. So, okay. Yeah. All right. I yeah. thought, man, I'm gonna win. I'm gonna win the next round of of, of Scrabble. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> never heard that. Yeah. Before. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh yeah it's it's very specific uh okay. to this this sort of issue yeah but um it does it does tend to cause a ridiculous amount of pain though, so. so. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. We're seeing, we're see, you're seeing uh, patients with this, this pain problem that isn't alleviated by surgery get relief. Yeah, absolutely. By, by yeah. Getting, so 
Yeah. Well, just by, just by removing, you know, the different, you know, toxic elements that, that cause increased inflammation and increased pain response. You know, just like I noticed with working out and not getting sore, you know, those, those same toxic elements that would normally latch onto these, these, this, this inflammation that's going on in your body, uh, this normal, healthy inflammation that's, that's trying to heal something and, and causing pain and distress. Uh, that's, I sort of think of it as, as that, that sort of latching onto any sort of point of healing or, or disturbance and, and increasing that, that pain experience. And, and that seems to be what, what is happening. And when you remove those uh, elements from people's diet, they, they do much better. Um, I, you know, I can't say that it's going to help everyone because I mean, nothing ever does, but it, it, it's going to help people in, in, in certain ways. It may not fix all of their problems, but it, it will help you get better. It will help your health improve because it's just the, well, it's in my view, the optimal diet for people. And so your body's going to start being optimized and you can have damage done. You can have permanent issues that aren't going to get better, even with diet and you have things that aren't caused by diet. And so diet's not going to uh, change the fundamental uh, reality of that, but it can improve your experience with it. And I find that it, it does that with pain as well. You know, there's a, there's a, a diagnosis called fibromyalgia, which, which, many, which is sort of a, a diagnosis of exclusion. They, they go down all these different paths. We say, Oh, we can't really figure this out. You're just in pain everywhere. We'll call it fibromyalgia. A lot of people uh, I've spoken to really don't think it exists. They think it's in people's heads or they think that they're just sort of putting it on and, and just being a, a bit weak. And yet people are absolutely debilitated and uh and uh, you know and this has affected their lives for for years and decades and i've had a number of people reach out to me uh online or over email or in comments of, of my videos talking about how they've had you know radiculopathy or sciatica and chronic pain and fibromyalgia for years or, or over a decade and then after a few months on carnivore, it's gone and they're off their pain meds and they're, and they're so happy about that. You know, people think it's like, oh, they're just trying to get painkillers. And yet this one gentleman was, uh, you know, was on these painkillers and opiates for 12 years. And then all of a sudden he was just like, he's like, oh, I'm off. I'm off painkillers for the first time in 12 years. I couldn't be happier. You know, these, you know, some people are drug seeking obviously, but, uh, most of these people aren't, I would say. And a lot of these people are really just trying to figure out how they can live with, you know, such a great deal of pain. And I find that this is something that, that really works, uh, to at least improve their situation and they at least improve their experience of that pain. Other, other than that, you know, Oh, sorry, you're going to ask me. Well, a question that comes to mind is, um, oftentimes when you make a, a lifestyle change, you will see a, a change in your experience as a result of making a change mm -hmm. regardless of what that change happens to be. Um, and my question is, can some of the benefit be explained just by, oh, you were doing, you were doing this and you just changed it. And now you're doing something different or, or are the effects long lasting enough that we can point pretty positively and say the thing you were doing before was what was causing the problem and 
changing it is what made the problem go away. Does that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, certainly if there's like a placebo effect, I think, well, this is going to help me. This is going to change my yeah. life. And you know, maybe, yeah. maybe it does. Maybe they look for, for reasons why that, that has, and, and certainly that could be the case. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have, you know, really many studies on specifically looking at a carnivore diet in people. We have you know, that one, um, you know, study that came out of Harvard with, with just over 2000 people. And they found that, that everyone really improved in, you know, uh, by, by self-survey, uh, for many, many different issues and then had objective markers as well. They improved their HbA1c in diabetics for, for instance. And, uh, you know, that's something you can't fake and that's not subjective. That's not just, Oh, I, I, I feel a bit, I think this will help my diabetes. And so it does you know, that that's an objective marker of, uh, of oxidation and glycation in, in your body. And so that's a, that's a definite improvement. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll get more studies in the future because I think that, that, that's Harvard study in particular has opened the door to people take, you know, taking a look at this seriously. Um, but, you know, we don't, we don't have, especially for like, you know, chronic pain and things like that. And you know, we don't really have, uh, you know, long-term data on things, but, you know, we certainly have the the sort of the, the the practical understanding of how these mechanisms work in our body, which which makes sense. Um, but you know, in practice, you know, I, not even telling people, hey, this is going to help your pain. I just, you know, this is I, I just I just argue that hey, this is this is optimal for people, and this is this is the best way to eat. And and people look at me, and I mean, you know, they think like, well, this guy's in good shape. You know, he's doing well you know, maybe there's something to this and, you know, my explanations, you know, uh, to their questions, uh, seems to, to fit. And so then they give it a try, you know, just, just from my own observation, uh, without mentioning that this is going to help, help their pain. So many people have come to me. It's like, my arthritis pain is gone. My back pain is gone. I, I, I just so much feel so much better, uh, in, in, in all these different ways. And pain seems to be one that, that is, comes back again and again and again. And I'm not the only one that seems to experience just no pain after working out, you know, everyone is like that. That's, that's so crazy. I was working with an orthopedic surgeon, uh, years ago and, um, and he was sort of getting interested in it. And so he started doing, uh, carnivore and, you know, started losing weight right away, started feeling a lot better, having a lot of energy. And we went to the, went to the gym once and he wasn't a big you know gym guy, uh, but he would, he would go every now and then. And so I, I went and, and uh, said, like, okay, why, why don't you do my workout with me? And I made this guy do <laughs> so many sets of different, different exercises and really pushed him, pushed him and made him go to you know, muscle fatigue and, and, uh, and, um, and exhaustion. And I remember him saying, he's like, well, you know, I, I don't like going, you know, too hard, you know, the night before surgery, because I don't, I don't like being sore in surgery. I was like, yeah, but you're not going to get sore. You know, you, you've been eating carnivore. You're not going to get sore. And he's just like, he's very, very, you know, aware of this. He's like, mm, is this, is this really true? Like, you know, I don't know. And I was just, and he's just, and so he, he did it. He ended up doing like the big the whole workout with me. We were there for like two hours and, um, and then uh, he had actually had to go. I would have, I would have kept him there longer. And um, note to and self: he, don't go with Anthony yeah, if he yeah. asks you to go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> well, unless you've been carnivore, because yeah. <laughs> and um, and so he was just like he, he started looking at me. He's like, 
yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see, I'm going to see if this, this actually works out. If you're actually right about this, about not being sore. And I said, I just fired back at him. I'm like, yeah, I'm interested to see if you're actually doing carnivore, how pure you're actually, uh, actually doing this. And, uh, you know, the next day, um, you know, we were operating and he's just looking at me and he was kind of, you know, a little myth. He's like, you know, he's like, you're right. You know, like, I'm not sore. Like, I don't know why. Like I, I and, and, and I, and I'm, I'm sort of upset about that. I, I kind of wanted you to be wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was like, look, man, I, I told you this, this is just a thing. We sat down uh, around lunchtime and, and one of the reps came in and brought everyone coffee. You know, I didn't have any. And then after about, you know, 10, you know, 15, 20 minutes into that coffee break, you know, he's sitting there and he's just like, Hey, you know, actually, I, you know, I do actually kind of feel sore. Actually, I am feeling a bit sore, you know, across the chest and the shoulders. I just pointed at his coffee cup and I'm like, what are you drinking? And he's just like, damn it. <laughs> like the coffee itself, you know, just started making him sore. And then within 20 minutes of drinking that coffee, he already started feeling sore. Yeah. I noticed the same thing. You know, when I, when I stopped eating all this, uh, I, 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 you know, for the second time, I, I then consciously noticed like, why, why I can't, I can't get tired that, or run out of, um, or sorry, get sore. And I was like, oh, man, it's just not working out hard enough. And I, I, so I put it to the test. I just started doing sets of squats until I wanted to get to muscle, you know, failure until I was just jello legged and couldn't do another set. I ended up doing 32 sets of squats over four hours. And I, I, I couldn't even, you know, I, and I was going to failure every set. And, you know, as long as like two sets, yeah, yeah. And, and I was always going to failure every time. Okay, Folks, this may be the most unbelievable thing I have heard (laughs) so far. 32 body weight squats, back squats. What were you doing? Back squats. Yeah. Oh, dear God. And this is what, right when I got back from, from Bangladesh. And so I was doing, um, you know, so I hadn't, hadn't worked out in months and, you know, I did a leg day and I did a fairly heavy leg day. I did, you know, 12 sets, you know, including squats, but also, you know, single leg, like, you know, stepping up onto a box with, you know, like 185 pounds on my back and, you know, stepping up one leg at a time and, you know, doing that and, you know, three sets of that and all these different sorts of things. And so, um, and I was I wasn't sore. I was like, well, why is that? Am I just not working out hard enough? And I was like, well, I thought that was a pretty big workout doing twelve sets and and you know working pretty hard. But at the same time, I didn't I didn't walk out of there just you know like stumbling like you know baby gazelle, you know. And um, and uh, you know, so I said, like, okay, well, I'll 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 really go at it next time, and Did and I'll do that twelve volume. No. I sort of thought about it once, like, but, um, so what I did was, you, you know, know what your volume was. <laughs> yeah. Well, we probably figured it out. I mean, like, so I did that first 12 sets, uh, of, you know, whatever, but then I, I started doing squats after that, after that 12 sets. Um, and I just started doing squats, 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 squats. So it was, so it was 32 sets of, of heavy legs, but yeah. then followed up with, with the squats at the end of that. I just, I just said like, okay, I'm just going to keep doing squats until I, I fatigue and I, and I just can't do anymore. Um, but, and I was going to fatigue and I was taking, you know, I was taking like, you know, four or five minutes off in between sets. You know, I was, I was giving myself a full rest. Um, and, and I found that as long as I could, as long as I did that, give myself a full rest, I could just, I could basically do the same thing I did. I was doing at the time I was, it was like, you know, it wasn't that much. It was like 225. And I did my first set was like 15 reps 
And then on my last set, still 225 was doing, I did 13 reps, you know? And so, and that was over 20, 20 sets. So and this then would the, the 12 the refractory that. period is, <clears throat> is completely changed. Holy smokes. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I, I mean, honest to God, I, I'm not meaning to be an ass here, but that, that's, that literally is the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, well you know, at least try that I've heard on this show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but you can try yeah, it, you know? Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Yeah. No, I was just going to uh, say it, it, it's pretty amazing when we look at, you know, how our body is supposed to function. And, mm. you know, when you, when you stop poisoning it, when you stop, you know, getting in the way of optimal function and things that we can accomplish, uh, really do become pretty impressive. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective, you know, on, uh, you know, so one of the things that, you know, the carnivore diet does obviously is get people into ketosis and, uh, the brain is one of the organs that probably benefits most from ketosis. Um, many people argue, uh, you'll probably agree with this, that, you know, uh, ketones are the optimal fuel for the brain. Uh, but talk a little bit about your perspective on that, what you've seen and how it maybe interacts with some of the uh, conditions that, uh, you know, some of the conditions that affect the brain that you see. And we can even really touch on the, the cancer issue, um, which I know a lot of people are afraid to talk about. Uh, but again, we have more and more data showing that, you know, ketogenic states are beneficial uh, for many types of cancer and brain cancer, uh, you know, particular types of brain cancer, the glioblastoma are probably at the top of that list. Yeah. Yeah, ab absolutely. And um, I, I do gr agree fully that, that ketones are our brain's primary energy uh, source and, and preferred energy source. People will say that it, it's glucose, but that's just because when you look at biochemistry, we call one a fed state and one a fasting state in that fed state, you know, we have, it's predominantly running on glucose, but it's also running on ketones. Your brain always runs on ketones. You know, I learned that in, in undergrad biochemistry, you know, 22 years ago, you may, may, uh, learn the same thing. Um, your brain's always running on ketones. And when you're, when your body reaches a certain threshold, of ketones, no matter how much glucose is in your system, your brain completely switches over to ketones and it just stops uh, and it just kicks out the glucose. Like, Nope, this is what we want. And so I would think that's quite clear evidence that, uh, that that is your brain's preferred energy source when it has an abundance of glucose, but, and it has, you know, but just a, a minimum threshold of ketones, it goes just to ketones. That seems to be a preference. Um, and, um, Specifically, the the things that it, it can help certainly brain cancer, but also we've been we we have a hundred years of data on the ketogenic diet benefiting epileptics, uh, you know, so so suppressing seizures, even curing seizures, just by going on in, in a ketogenic state. And I've I've just anecdotally found that people going on carnivore are further improved. You know, one gentleman, you know, drank coffee, no carbs, and it gave him the seizure when he'd been seizure free for for a number of years and had been you know multi drug. Uh, uh, epileptic still having uncontrolled seizures before he went keto that got rid of most of it. Then he went carnivore that got rid of all of it. 
and um, and then the coffee set off a seizure as well. So he, you know, he would say that that uh, you know, just caffeine is a neurotoxin uh, because of that. Uh, migraines as well. We have literally a hundred years of data showing that just being in a ketogenic state uh, helps uh, migraines significantly. There was uh, a study that uh, Professor Ben Bickman of uh, BYU sent me where they found that like 90% of migraine sufferers back in like the twenties were basically cured of their migraines and the remaining 10% were significantly improved and had a, had a much reduced burden of, of migraines and migraine severity. Um, specifically with, with cancer of the brain, GBM uh, glioblastoma being the most common and the most aggressive and deadly. Uh, there's quite a lot of research, uh, at least in animal models, uh, from people such as Professor Thomas Seafree from Boston College, um, who actually did, uh, who was an associate professor at Yale in, in neuroscience um, for his postdoc and, uh, and, and studied ketones and epilepsy back then and was told at the time, like, oh, no, no, we, we have good pharmacology for that. Like, don't, don't worry about that as a, as a line of research. And um, that's sort of, you know, the, the state that we're in in medicine is that, you know, here's a problem, here's a pill, like, oh, there's a problem, let's find a pill for that problem. And, and I think we've sort of, I think it's detracted from medicine as, as opposed to helping it uh, as much as it could, because obviously it's, it's a benefit, it's a massive benefit being able to have these pharmaceuticals, but being completely reliant on them is, is not a good thing, I think. And so for, for GBMs, he's done a lot of studies in animal models showing that being in a ketogenic state is significantly uh, beneficial to all cancers and GBM uh, as well. Um, even though it's, it's a very, it's a tough nut to crack. It's a very, it's still a very aggressive and difficult disease. Very specifically, you know, we know from cancer biology that, that cancer cells need about 400 times the amount of, of glucose as other cells in our body to function because they're not as, as, uh, as, as efficient at it. They can't go through aerobic respiration, the mitochondria, they go through, uh, fermentive, um, that is sort of a fermentive respiration. So they're much, much less efficient at getting uh, ATP out of glucose molecules. So they need a much, much, much higher load of glucose. So they pull in 400 times the amount of glucose. We've known this since uh, Otto Warburg, who won a Nobel prize in medicine back in the, I think in the 1930s. And he did a lot of work on cancer and mitochondria. And he showed that and um, Seafried has, has corroborated it, that they have dis that cancer cells have dysfunctional mitochondria that can't uh, you know, process and produce energy as well. So they need a ton of glucose. So just limiting the amount of glucose in your system by being in a state of ketosis is going to significantly improve that because these, these mitochondria, these damaged mitochondria apparently aren't able to, to work on ketones. So your body can get energy from ketones and you have a, you know, a low level of, of blood sugar, which is perfectly fine for you, but that really, really curtails the growth of these cancer cells. Um, he, he's found in animal models that, that, that's, that that's very beneficial in treating cancer in general and, uh, and also with GBM and, um, and also with uh, limiting glutamine. Which is what you can't really limit glutamine. It's 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 just a very you know I think it's the most abundant amino acid in our body. But uh, but there are medications that have been used for other other uh, conditions that sort of uh, you know block it off, and that that that's another major fuel source for these cancers. They found that especially the combination of those two significantly help. Um, there are now people that have 
taking that on board specifically what well, with, with cancer in general and have and have uh had good improvements and there have been some studies on on like breast cancers and colon cancers and things like that but specifically with gbm like we don't have any like studies with human human subjects however there are quite a lot of people anecdotally that have just looked at this and said okay you know i'm going to try something else like a gbm is uh for people who don't know this is this is this is something that's considered an, an incurable disease you get a diagnosis of gbm you now have terminal cancer right then and there you know it's not that oh this is progressed to the point that this has become terminal it's like you have a diagnosis of that it is terminal it's just a matter of, of when and so the treatments how we, how we cancel people in, uh, in the hospital is that, you know, this isn't something that we can cure, but we can, our treatments aren't able to cure. They're just focused on extending life as opposed to, you know, getting like an, an actual cure. So some people just don't like hearing that, especially if they have, uh, you know, a very aggressive form, you know, because there are different kinds of GBMs and there can be more or less aggressive forms. And there was a, one gentleman I spoke to, uh, Andrew Scarborough, who's in England who heard this uh, and he had uh, basically the exact type of GBM that you don't want. It's like the most aggressive form of GBM. And, um, and so he looked at that and he just said, okay, well, there's no point in doing chemo and radiation then because you know, my, my form of cancer doesn't respond to that. So I need to look at something else. And he, and he came across, you know, uh, being in ketosis and ketogenic diet, helping cancer, and he started doing that. And then he started, you know, limiting plants. He started going carnivore. Um, he actually started um, uh, drinking like deuterium depleted water. If you, if you guys uh, have come across that sort of, that sort of thing, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, just deuterium being heavy, heavy hydrogen. And that seems to affect uh, different signaling processes in our, in our cells. And you get a certain threshold of deuterium. They, they, it, it triggers mitosis and this, and the, the splitting of cells just by how like the heavier hydrogen sort of manipulate, um, you know, the active centers in these molecules and make them more or less, uh, you know, bioactive somehow. I don't, I don't think anyone really understands the full mechanisms, but we apparently, you know, you hit a certain threshold of deuterium, it triggers the body, the, the cell, like, okay, let's split now. And so you can get, uh, you, you can promote growth and, uh, and mitosis that way, which is, you know, can cancer is uh, unregulated growth, which is going back to mitochondria, mitochondria regulate growth. And if those are dysfunctional, it can't do its job in policing the, the, uh, unregulated growth, which is what cancer is. Um, and so he was doing that for a while. He's not doing that anymore. He's just doing that for, for a little bit and being in ketosis actually makes your deuterium levels reduce significantly because, uh, for a number of different reasons, uh, but, uh, but it does. And so the average life expectancy of someone with a GBM, any GBM, and especially his GBM without treatment is three months. He's now 10 years in. And he has no sign of disease on his MRI. That's literally unheard of, except when you're in this sort of circle and you, and you hear, you know, Thomas Seafried, he, he has someone who's been eight years, eight and a half years, and he's had a couple of resections. It sort of, you know, will grow, but it grows very slowly. And so it grows big enough and they sort of resect that out. And, and he goes on his way. Andrew had his initial resection. He hasn't had a, a, any resections after that. And I, I have a friend of mine who I, 
sort of pointed these things out to several years ago. She's now five and a half years in at her five-year check, her MRI showed no sign of disease. And she hasn't been full on by any stretch of the imagination. She actually has had a recurrence. Um, and as like you know, Seafried and others say, is like, you know, this is something that like, you have to be well on top of because, you know, GBMs are very, very aggressive. You know, there's a Sophia Clemens, Dr. Sophia Clemens over in Hungary, and she has a Palo Medicina and she, uh, I was speaking to her, she has, um, over the last decade, she's had 30 GBM patients and over uh, nearly 200 just brain cancer patients in general. And she's saying that if they're strict, if they're really, really strict on a carnivore diet and a specific fat to protein ratio, it can stop the progression of their disease, that it doesn't necessarily go away. Other cancers will go away. And she's found in her practice, but GBM, they just, it, it's able to stop it in its, in its tracks, which is again, you know, unheard of. This is something that's very, very, very uncommon or, or just not possible. It's thought because yeah. it is such an aggressive, uh, hearing a lot of things that, that five, 10 years ago were thought to be impossible. We had Chris Palmer on and told us that they're curing incurable brain dysfunctions with mm. a ketogenic diet. I don't know how many doctors we've had on who said they're curing diabetes when mm -hmm. up until not very long ago, diabetes was incurable. So, hey, why yeah. not more? Well, that's it. You know, and, and if you're, if your body is you know, being given this optimal fuel and you're not, you're not tripping it up with different sorts of weird toxins, you know, your body's just going to work better. And, and so we don't necessarily understand what that's like because we haven't really studied it yet. You know, we, we see different native populations and we say like, Hmm, that's weird. They don't get cancer. And there have been studies, you know, in the native, uh, you know, native uh, Canadians and Alaskans, uh, when eating a traditional diet of just, you know, meat and blubber, you know, they don't get cancer. They don't get uh, breast cancer. Uh, there was a specific study looking at breast cancer out of, I think, Nova Scotia. I think Nova Scotia, anyway, like Eastern Canada. And, uh, and they found that, that these people, they just, they just weren't getting breast cancer at all. And, you know, as, as Thomas Siegfried points out, you know, animals in the wild don't get cancer. Now we don't study every single animal in the wild, but the ones we come across, they don't get cancer. Animals in the zoo, when eating their, their natural wild diet, don't get cancer. Humans do dogs and cats do, but we're eating things that are outside of our species and we're getting mm. problems. And I think that that's why, that's why I sort of make the argument and I'm trying to finish a book on the subject, basically arguing that, you know, that, um, that these so-called chronic diseases are, are not diseases per se, but actually toxicities and malnutrition, you know, a toxic buildup of a species inappropriate diet and a lack of species specific nutrition. So namely too many plants, not enough meat. And I think that, I think that you can, you can prove that just with the evidence that's uh, available now in the literature. Wow. Okay. Um, Phil, I've got other questions that have nothing to do with this. I'm going to take us a different direction, but I don't <laughs> want to do that. If you've got more, you want to say. And you're you're on mute right now. There you go. Yeah, I know. Go ahead. Let's uh, go in a little yeah, bit of a different direction to bring there this you home. Go. Now we hear you. Go ahead in a little different direction and okay. bring this home. All right. I want to I want to back up twenty years to when you were a, mm -hmm. a, a, a 
a, a rugby player. Um, you talked about uh, uh, experimenting with carnivore to help you with performance and this story about 32 sets of squats. I'm, I'm tempted to call bullshit on that, but <laughs> you don't seem like the kind of guy who'd lie. Um, but, but, uh, you would have been in what your early twenties, then late teens, early twenties. Yeah. Um, when we would expect a, a high level of athletic performance anyway. So how do you know you weren't just performing well, just cause you were 20 years old? Yeah, no, that, no, that's, that's, that's a very good point. And obviously, you know, I, I was, I was thinking that, you know, uh, when I was saying that uh, I, I just felt amazing in my early twenties and in my head, yeah, well, I, was like, I did well, too. I was, in, I was in my, I was in my early twenties. Of course <laughs> I did. But you know, this was, this was, uh, in comparison to myself as a professional athlete, I felt night and day different. I, I, you know, basically played you know, five years. Well, I, I was sort of played about 10 years of professional rugby before I went to medical school. And, you know, the first five years of that were on a carnivore diet. The, the second five years were not. And then, then prior to that, you know, I was an all American in high school and, um, and, in, uh, you know, so when I was 18, you know, I toured with the junior national team, we went to New Zealand, we were playing, all, you know, uh, against the, you know, the Maoris and, uh, New Zealand boys down there and, and you know, did all these different trips and amazing. And that was on a normal diet where I literally ate McDonald's twice a day yeah. uh, on that trip. You know, it was just, it was just a way that you could just feed a bunch of people at the time. Like, all right, we're going to McDonald's, just eat, eat whatever the hell you have to eat. And, um, and so I was, you know, I was, I was, you know, playing a very high level on McDonald's, you know, and, and fries and sodas and all that garbage, you know? And so, you know, you can do it, you know, but then when I went on a carnivore diet, like I just, it was just, it was just night and day difference from when I was 19 versus 20, you know, I, I was just incredibly different experience. And then when I was 25 in England and I started eating sort of breaded meat and just sort of started slipping off of it a couple months into it, I was like, well, why don't I feel it's just unbelievably amazing as I normally do? Am I just not working out as hard? Am I just not, you know, am I just, I'm 25 now, am I just over the hill and I'm just dying now? And, uh, I actually thought that I actually wondered if that was it, if that was an age thing. And, uh, it wasn't until I started looking looking back from now going like, no, that was it. That was the difference. You know, I was, I was just eating meat then. And, you know, it's when I, when I started doing this again, at you know, I just turned 38, I'm just about to turn 43, uh, in a couple months. And so it'll be five years at that point. Um, I just looked at that and went like, right. I knew it. I knew plants were trying to kill me, like get rid of these stupid things. And I just, I, I got rid of them. And I just started eating uh, meat again and exclusively meat and fatty meat in particular, because I now knew the research about, you know, uh, you know, saturated fat and cholesterol actually being good for you. And, um, you know, so I, I started doing that and I felt better at 38 than I did as a 27 year old professional athlete, wow. you know, so this is in comparison to myself and those, those 32 sets of squats. Um, it's, it does sound incredible. And that was, and that was at 38, that was, I was 38 years old when I did that. And, but you know, at the end of it, like, it wasn't like I did 38 sets and just went, Oh gosh, oh, I'm over it. It was, I came to, it dawned on me that I could literally just keep doing this the rest of the night. And, you know, and, and, uh, but I had been there for four hours and I had things I needed to do. So I'm like, all right, let's just put, let's just put a break on this. But, you know, I was, I was listening to different, you know, books on tape and you know, I was, I was listening to it like, you know, 
Thomas Sowell, who I, I absolutely love, you know, economist, if you guys haven't uh, come across him, but I, I just think he's great. Yeah. Great guy. And, um, anointed. yes, exactly. And so, uh, I think I was listening to wealth, poverty and politics at the time. And so I was listening to that and it was just, I was just in the zone. I was just like, great. I'm listening to something I enjoy. I'm just doing this and I'll just keep doing sets. And I finally was just like, okay, I could literally be doing this the whole night. And I had a friend of mine and I'd done stupid, big, uh, leg workouts before, uh, in my early, you know, or, or in sort of my twenties, but not on carnivore. And I nearly killed myself and just been crippled for like two weeks and just like, yeah. like almost in tears going up and downstairs. And I was thinking, I was like, Oh my God, I really hope that I really hope I didn't do that to well, myself. Everybody again. who lifts understands. Oh yeah. I had a heavy leg day and, yeah. and now I have to come down a set of stairs. Yeah. <laughs> And I just want to cry. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that was the thing. And I, I thought about that and I, I had a friend of mine call me and said, Hey, you know, you want to go hike up this big, stupid mountain tomorrow, which sounded awful to me. And I, said, you know, I was thinking about, you know, am I even going to be walking the next day? And I said, you know, like, let's, let's take it easy. Let's slow down a step. I may have just done something very stupid. And I may not be walking properly for the next few weeks. So let's just see how I feel in the morning. I've just done this experiment. And I woke up in the morning. It was like nothing had happened. And I started going up the stairs and it was just like, yeah, that's nothing. I started taking the steps two at a time. And I felt, okay, there's something going on there. There's some, there, I can tell that my hamstrings are not tight, but that they had been, they had done work and it's like, okay, but it, but I felt fine. So I said, fine you know, let's go hiking. And so I we went hiking. It was like a three hour hike up this, this mountain. And then it was actually fairly straightforward. I'd done that same hike, you know, the previous this year and I hated more it and more incredible. Yeah. Well, and then, and then at that point I just realized because I, I'd been, I just come back from Bangladesh, um, from working, you know, volunteering the humanitarian or in the, in the refugee camps, there, helping the Rohingya refugees that came over from genocide in Burma, uh, or escaping genocide in Burma. And, and so I was, I was not in shape. I was really, really out of shape, but I'd done, I'd been on carnivore now for two weeks and I was just, I was trying to get back in shape for rugby. And that's why I was eating some vegetables and some meat, but then I was like, and I wasn't feeling great. And then I felt like, well, right, that's it. Plants are trying to kill me, get rid of these stupid things. And then after about two weeks of that, I was at this point now and I felt amazing. I was still out of shape. I was not, I had a lot of excess, uh, you know, uh, fat on me and I had not been running or doing anything in a, in a very long time. And, you know, I did that leg workout the next day I did this big hike and I just felt amazing. I'm like, right, I'm ready. I'm going back. And I went to rugby practice that night you know, with my team in Seattle, which was now a professional, it's a, you know, the MLR major league rugby, uh, the Seawolves up in Seattle. And so I was with them and I was at, at, you know, just, I was like, all right, well, let's push myself. Like I did when I was doing carnivore in my early twenties, everything I did was that, was that maximum capacity. It was like, everything's a dead sprint. I'm just pushing myself as hard as I can go and see what happens. And I, I could just, I could just go again. And so these people have been, you know, training for months that I had been away in Bangladesh and I was keeping up with everything, just, you know, just guns blazing again, the next day still was not sore. And two days after still was not sore, but I could feel my legs were healing. And I was like, okay, yeah, you've done a lot of work. You could do it again, but eventually you're going to tear something. That was sort of the, the, the impression that I got, but there wasn't any stiffness or soreness. And two days after that, I went to meet a friend uh, for coffee 
And I was thinking in my head, like, all right, well, what, how does coffee, because I was still in the experimental phase of yeah. carnivore, still sort of testing it out. So I'm like, okay, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I'm still researching, looking into it. And so I said, okay, well, what about coffee? You know, is that, can I have coffee? Is that, is that something I hadn't had in, in several weeks? So let's, let's try back in. Let's see what it does. I had one cup of black coffee and in 20 minutes or so, my my hamstrings started getting all tight. My glutes were all tight and sore. My back was getting stiff. And I was like, oh, I can actually feel it in real time. My body's stiffening up. And I'm like, okay, okay, what's happening? What's happening? And I was sore for the next two days. And so that's when I was like, okay, yeah, right. This is just a universal, well, these things. Uh, the soreness is, is not the buildup of lactic acid. No. That implies that the soreness is actually the reaction. It's either the toxin itself or the body's reaction to the toxin. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking clearly on that, aren't I? I would, I would, I would say so. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, and, yeah. and the lactic acid, I mean, that's the, that's your oxygen debt for the work you're doing at the time. And when you switch into an anaerobic uh, form of metabolism and, you know, you run out of oxygen, so you can't go down the normal, normal rate. So you, you create lactic, uh, lactate as a result of that, but that's called your oxygen debt. And when you breathing heavily and you, and you catch your breath, you're actually converting that, that lactate over again and, and making energy from that. So, um, you get rid of that lactic acid right then and there. So you have that burn, from working out and, and it's, and it's painful that I still get that, you know, you still, you're still going to get uh, lactic acid buildup. Um, and I don't know if I can tolerate it more or less than other people because of this, but you know, I do experience that, but once it's gone, it's gone. It doesn't just show up two days later for no reason. You know, that, that's a, that's a, it's a quick turnover on that. And so I think that's something that's again, just been sort of just, uh, just repeated so many times that people just say, Oh, well, that's just what that is. But I don't think that it is. I don't think physiologically it could possibly be. And I, and in my experience with this, uh, it, it doesn't line up with that either because I, you know, I'm not getting that soreness and stiffness. It's, it, it really is a product of, of what we're eating. I find. Phil, we don't, we don't talk about your workouts much, but you've been carnivore for, I don't know, a long time. Do you have that same experience? Uh, do you have that feeling of, of, I'm sorry, I, we got to let you yeah. know because you got a plane to catch, but do no, you have that right. feeling like you can just keep going? Yeah. And, you know, I don't work out nearly to the degree that Anthony does. Um, but, um, you know, where I notice it is uh, really, you know, when it comes to surgery and work and, you know, where I would, you know, be noticeably tired at the end of the a long surgery, you know, 10 years ago. Now I, you know, am not. And I'm just like, okay, bring on the next one, you know, let's keep going. Uh, and that's, you know, that's where I notice it most. Uh, but I can also say, you know, um, when I do do those extra hard workouts, again, my extra hard workouts are going to be, uh, you know, cakewalks for Anthony. But when I do what I consider to be an extra hard workout, I also notice I'm not sore at all you know afterward this has been one of the most encouraging i mean everything's these are all great but holy smoke this is really <laughs> really encouraging to me for reasons that have nothing to do with the show all right well ordinarily phil can hang around and, and chit chat but he's got a plane to catch mm -hmm. and we don't want him to miss his ride back home um anthony uh we've 
I've got a boatload of contact information for you. We'll make sure that that is posted uh, in the show notes. Is there one or two particular ways you'd love for people to get a hold of you you'd like to share right now? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I, th- I think the main one is just my my YouTube channel and podcast. My YouTube channel is just uh, my name, just Anthony Chafee, MD, and that's where I, I post uh, all of my videos and my my long form uh, interviews and and you know shorter videos, just talking about these sorts of things. And uh, my podcast is just the Plant Free MD, and that that's on any available on anything any any, any uh, platform. Yeah, well, yeah, just sort of you know tacking onto that, my my sort it. of origin story on all this uh, is just because I just stopped eating plants, you know, because they're they're, they're you know they're trying to kill you, <laughs> and uh, and, um, and and then Insta- <laughs> and then uh, yeah, Instagram is uh, I'm also very very active on Instagram. That that again is just Anthony Chafee MD. All righty, well, all of that stuff will be available in the show notes for our listeners, and. Uh, Wow. It's been a privilege. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank, thank you both very much. I, I really do appreciate it. And it was an absolute pleasure to meet both of you. I hope you can do it again. All right. Well, for Dr. Philip Levadia, I'm sorry, Phil. For Dr. Philip Levadia, who's getting on a plane, I'm Jack Heald. This is a Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. We do one of these every week about this time, and we'll talk to you all next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.